to know I came here at uh, no expense to the committee. <laughs> I wasn't invited to the dinner. I had to buy my own registration. So I'm self-supporting. <laughs> so therefore, I don't owe anybody. My name is Bob. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, really, really grateful to be here this morning. It's an absolute privilege for me to be able to share my story in Alcoholics Anonymous, particularly when it's when it's in my hometown. I mean, there's, you could probably walk not too far from here this morning and find someone who wouldn't have the same opinion you might have in me after you hear, hear my story. I uh, I don't think I was born an alcoholic, and I I was born. I don't think the doctor brought me down to my mother and said, "Mrs. Nilsson, this is your new little alcoholic," and I went downhill from, from there. You know, I kind I kind of kind of wor- worked at it. Uh, I think the other thing to me is that uh, I hope that everybody's expectations aren't aren't too high high this morning. Uh, I heard somebody share a story one time, and I, and I liked it about expectations. And uh, it was basically this: that there was this guy sitting in the bar, and he was really down and out, and he just just was having a real bad morning. And the bartender walked over to him, and he said, uh, "What's your problem this morning?" I mean, he says, "Well," he said, "About about a month ago, I had an aunt that died." And uh, and you know, and the bartender says, "Well, I remember that that she was very old and she was very successful and she had a great life and she traveled all over the country. And it seems to me that she left you like four hundred thousand dollars." And Heinie said, "That's that's right." And he says, "Well, what are you so down in the dumps about?" And he says, "Well, you know, two weeks ago I had another aunt that died." And he said, "Well, I think I think that was the same story, wasn't it? That she had a lot of money and she traveled all over the world. She's successful and you had a good relationship with her." And, and I think that she did leave you some money too, didn't she? And he said, yeah. He says, what are you so down in the dumps about? <laughs> he said, this week, nothing yet. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so I hope your expectations aren't, aren't, aren't too high this, this, this morning. I, uh, I, uh, I didn't have any trouble with alcohol until I was in the, in the sixth grade. And <laughs> you know what? Well, I say that is my father used to work on the railroad and he'd come home on, home on Sundays and if I'd been a good little kid that day, he'd give me a little sip out of his beer or brandy or whatever he'd been drinking that day and I'd have some days more, more than my share and I'd flop around the floor and, and have that, have that good feeling and it just sort of, I heard it described one time and alcohol for me was like swallowing an umbrella. It just kind of went down there and opened up and filled up everything and made, made the world look, look alright. I, uh, as I said, you know, I didn't, I didn't, graduate to morning drinking, I actually started out drinking in the morning. Uh, both of my parents, in my opinion, were, were, were alcoholics. Uh, we didn't live in a high-rise, high-rent district. They were living in a little apartment in the West End here uh, for $25 a month. And uh, and I uh, began to look around early in life and see how other kids were living and how I was living. And in the neighborhood that I grew up in, there was a group of kids that were older than I was and another group of kids that were younger than I was. And the older kids didn't want to play me in, with me and the younger kids their parents didn't want me to play with them. So I was kind of alone, just kind of working my way through this, this neighborhood. And when I talk about not having any trouble with alcohol till I was in the sixth grade, there was two things that you could be in Lincoln Elementary School at that time. And one was a projectionist, and the other was a police boy. And I didn't have any mechanical ability, so they sent me out in traffic with this metal, metal stop sign. And uh, what I used to do was take that stop sign and throw it and stick it in a telephone pole. And one morning, the uh, principal came by and he said, if you continue to do that, we're going to kick you off the police boy force. Well, that next morning, and I believe the next morning it was more out of habit than defiance, I was throwing my sign and sticking it in that pole. The principal came by and reminded me of the conversation we had the day before, and he kicked me off the police boy force. Well, it was about three months later, and that morning when everybody else was going off to the police boy picnic, uh, that morning when I went to school, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. I put two cans of beer, I went in the refrigerator and took two cans of beer out of there, put it in my little Mickey Mouse lunchbox, and off to school I went. And uh, that's the first time that I ever remember consciously uh, having the intent to drink alcohol for what it would do for me. Because I remember when I saw those other kids walking out of the playground to get on the bus to go to the picnic, I remember that feeling that I had that I couldn't go. And so I went to my locker and I got my little lunchbox and I went into the bathroom and I was drinking those beers as fast as I could. And a janitor came in and he caught me. And he sent me home. And I went home to the kind of environment that I'd had up until that time and, and every time after that. There was, there was no discipline in my home. Not, not, not an ounce. And, I, and I'm grateful for that today, by the way. I, uh, and what my father told me was simply, don't ever do that again. And uh, that was it. And then uh, I went on to uh, that summer. Uh, I started to go to church with, with a friend of mine. 
my parents never went to church, but they sent me with the people that they were renting from, and I thought it was kind of a package deal, where uh, the people they were renting from uh, would take me to church and get get credit for bringing me to church, and my parents got to have them get credit for me going to church, and, and they got a cut on the rent. That's kind of how I like that. And uh, I started going to these confirmation classes with, with my best friend, and uh, we did everything together. And this one day, we went, we had gone uh, up to Pike Lake to go to go swimming, and on the way back, we were hitchhiking, and this vehicle picked us up. And the car rolled over and my friend was killed. And I remember going back to those confirmation classes, pleading with that minister for an explanation. And I never got one. And I'm sure that he did his very best job. But at that time, my perspective was, was different. All I knew that my friend was gone and no one was giving me an explanation for why, why it had to happen. So the rest of those confirmation classes, I just sat in the back row and I had my crew cut and my t-shirt and my black leather jacket with my collar cooled up. But I knew the lesson. I kind of figured out somewhere in life, if you read the lesson, you take the test, you get your score, and then you move on. Uh, so I'd always have the answer. And I remember spending many, many hours after those confirmation classes with that minister and him talking to me about my attitude. And he thought that he really had to change. So what happened was the day that I was to be confirmed, uh, my parents couldn't go that morning because they were they were home drinking. And uh, I remember going down to that church, and I had my little white robe on there with the flower. And I... Uh, was walking down from the podium after I gave my little speech and there was a pot of flowers next to that podium and I caught it with that long sleeve and I tipped that pot of flowers over And I remember the embarrassment that I felt. And I went over to the minister and I got my confirmation certificate and I ran home and I sort of threw it on the kitchen table and I said, I'm done with church. And uh, my parents and I had a beer. And that was uh, kind of the way that went. And then I went on into junior high school. And when I got into junior high school, I started to look around and I was real embarrassed about how my parents lived compared to how the other kids' parents lived. I mean, I lived in a home that was uh, fairly dirty most of the time. I didn't know if the car would be parked in the front yard or the backyard. I didn't have the kind of home that I'd want to bring my friends over to because my mother wasn't waiting at the door with a little apron and milk and cookies. It wasn't that kind of a home. And uh, so I thought if I got active in sports, that would be a good deal. Well, I don't really have much athletic ability either, but I looked around and I thought basketball would be a good, good sport to try because it was indoors and it was warm. And there wasn't too much physical contact. I thought that would be a good sport to do. So I'd show up for all these practices and stuff, and uh, I'd never get a chance to play in the game. Just kind of like they just dragged me along. And what happened was uh, we were in the championship game between uh, Lincoln and, and Ordeen, and, and at the end of the year, and somehow or other, our team got way ahead. And uh, in the excitement of everything, the coach uh, thought he could put me in for the last game of the year, and he called my name out, and, and, I, and I rushed out onto the gym floor, and it's a little delicate. You'll have to bear with me for a minute. In the past, you know, you used to put on all that gym shorts and your jock strap and all that other stuff and then your sweatpants on over it. But I found out, you know, I could cut all that stuff off because I wasn't really working up the sweat playing in a game. So I just didn't have any of that stuff on. And I, But I'm excited to get into the game and I run out in the middle of the floor and I pull off my sweatpants and then I realize what I've just done. <laughs> and I realize... But that isn't a big deal today, but, but in 1958, it was a big deal. <laughs> and, I, uh, and I didn't want to take a second to pull my sweatpants back up, so I just kind of duck-walked right off, <laughs> right off to the gym. And I, and I remember going home and telling my father, I said, I'm never going back to school again. <laughs> so by the time uh, I was in the ninth grade, I was done with church and, and done, done with school. So what I did to make up for all those... Uh, things in my life is I went down to Scott and Graff, which is no lumber company, and there was a lot of winos that used to hang around down there, and uh, they get their social security checks at the end of the month, and I was in pretty good physical shape from all that running in the basketball practice, and I'd go in there, and I'd steal their wine bottles, and their change, and, and I'd get on the train with them once in a while, and, and just, just take a ride, and that's, that's pretty much how I spent that whole summer, was riding around uh, the country on trains with winos and hobos, and just kind of enjoying life, is, is what happened, and I remember more than once going into a, a mission where there would be all these elderly ladies would be cooking these cookies and, and coffee and they would give me this lecture about how young I was and I didn't, didn't have to live that way. And somehow I came back and I went to school and, and back to school and, and I did very, very well in my, my senior high. And when I graduated from, from high school, I had won a, won a scholarship to, to go out east to, to, go, to go to school. And, and what, I, what I need to tell you about that is the night I was getting my graduation, uh, diploma. My, my parents couldn't make that either because my father was, was drunk and my mother was, was in the process. And the reason why I say that is, is you know, I, I remember more than once uh, driving through the friendly West End in Duluth and, and with a friend in the car and looking over on the sidewalk and seeing my mother passed out in front, in front of the liquor store. You know, and the embarrassment I felt for myself and just saying, you know, that it's, it's never going to be that way for me. 
And what happened was I went out east to go to school for a while and, and, uh, things didn't work out real well because I was, I was there to party and, and drink and, and not, not study. And I came back here and anyway, I met a couple of girls at a party that I'd gone to high school with and, and I, uh, just shared with them what my summer was like and what was going on. And they said they were going to go to California. And I said, well, you know, I'd like to go to California too. There's not much happening here. And, and, uh, I forgot about it. And maybe a month or two later, one of them called and said they were ready to go to California. And I said, well, me too. So I packed up everything I own in the back of my 1955 Dodge and off to California we went. Uh, to make a long story short, while I was out there, both those girls got married and I got drafted. <laughs> kind of the way things were going. And I, uh, because I had been to college and whatever and I would got selected for some, some special services and some training and I did very well and, and, uh, and I could be a hero because I had heard somewhere along the way that if you're an only child, you didn't have to go to, go to Vietnam and so I could, I could play the hero. Well, the day my billet number came up, I found that I was assigned to go to Vietnam and I and I ran into the commanding officer's office and I said, Sir, I said, uh I'm I'm an only child and uh <laughs> and uh I can't I can't go <laughs> and he didn't understand any of that. And uh so they shipped me off to uh off to California and when I when I got to California I came up with the same story and I tried to call home and, and when I called home the line was busy at this apartment that my parents were renting in and uh what I found out was that my parents' house had, had burnt down and they were both both in the hospital. So I remember going into the commanding officer's office there, and I said, Sir, I said, I'm an only child. I just called home. My parents' house burnt down. I can't possibly go. And uh, through, a, through a series of uh, contacts now, we found out that uh, my parents uh, were in the hospital, that they were both going to be okay. But that's one of those moments I recognized in my early inventories that when you talk about the selfishness and the self-centeredness of the alcoholic, I didn't for one second have a feeling about how my parents were. I just thought that it was a way out for me, that I, would, that I wouldn't have to go. And I'm not going to go through a whole bunch of war stories, that's that's for sure. But I certainly had my experience there. And uh, I need to say this, that I, my, my classic experience there was, you know, when you're where, where I was uh, with this river assault force, we were privy to a lot a lot of information. We basically reported to CIA, and there was some, some information that we could get. We had some official stamps. And there was this notice that came out that said we weren't supposed to drink Akadama wine. So what we did is my boat crew and I went around and we made some official papers and we collected Akadama wine. The reason why you weren't supposed to drink it was you'd go blind. But what we heard of was a temporary blindness and it was enough to get you back to stateside or to Yakuska Hospital for a while. So we collected all this wine and uh, we went out to a mission. And there's, this is in the history books. Uh, we went out to this place called Fuquak Island. And as we were drinking uh, out there to go blind, was our intent, uh, we got attacked. And... Uh, we didn't know if it was uh, them or friendly fire, so we thought we would call some some attention to ourselves, and we had some experience with, with demolition, and uh, we we set off this charge on, on this island, and uh, the island started to rumble and, and shake, and, and pretty soon there were some explosions far from where we were, and we thought, well, we better get get up get up the river. So we got in our boat, and, and we raced up the river. Well, 13 hours later, this island is still still exploding, and. Uh, when we came back to this LST, a guy looked at me and he said, Nilsson, the old man wants to see you. And I was kind of aware of that. Now, I don't know how many people drank wine in quantities that we drank wine in, but wine is the one thing that will get you there about three days before your head shows up. And I and I know uh, when I went up to his office, I knocked on the office and, I, and they called me in there and he said, Nilsson, do you realize what you've done? And I said, no, sir. And he said, uh, we were observing you from the observation deck, and he said that myself and my boat crew were responsible for blowing up a Viet Cong ammunition storage area that they'd been looking for for about six months. And uh, I said, uh, well, I thought it was something like that, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and he says, uh, do you realize you've done this country a, a great justice or, or something to that? And I said, well, I don't want to take all the credit. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Three weeks later, we were on a, on the deck of the USS Kennedy aircraft carrier, and we'd been nominated for a silver medal, which is a, which is a big deal if you're in the Navy. And, uh, and as part of that, we were granted five days of liberty of any port in the world that we wanted to go to. And, uh, the other four guys chose San Diego, and I chose Bangkok. It just kind of came to mind. I'd, <laughs> I'd never been there, and I heard there was a party going on. Well, Literally, they fly me to Bangkok and drop me off with, with a little pocket full of military money, which I cashed in for the big wheelbarrow full of what they called bot, was their, was their money exchange. And so here I am running down the streets with this wheelbarrow full of money, and I got five days. Well, that three days and the next two days were spent in the brig, because I, 
because I'd take a drink and I couldn't guarantee what my behavior was going to be. I got out of service with an honorable discharge and, and came home and had this idea that I would, I would go back to school. And, and what I did is when I landed in Duluth, I, I went up to the Volkswagen dealer. I bought a new Volkswagen. They said it's going to be a couple of days before it's ready or a couple of hours. And I said, well, bring it down to the Amber Flow bar in the West End. And I called a cab and I went to the Amber Flow and I threw my sea bag in the booth and ordered a drink. And the next conscious call I had made was from my parents or to my parents from Minneapolis, where I said, uh, you have 50 bucks to bail me out of jail for drunk and disorderly conduct. And my mother said, I heard you were back, and uh, and somebody keeps showing up with this car. <laughs> and uh, so I uh, I came back to Duluth, and I went back to the job that I had before I went into service, and that was that was bartending. And, uh, and it was one of those deals where they knew that I couldn't responsibly do that, and... Uh, there was a Soldier Sailors Act that they were pretty conscious of because the owner was a veteran and things. And, and uh, they just worked out some hours. So I just basically would show up and bartend and get drunk and go home. And, and when it would come like payday time, it would be Bob, you, you owe us. <laughs> you know, because I was charging my drinks. And and, uh, and during that, 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 that adventure, I met a, I met a lady who, who, wor- who worked in that bar. And, and uh, they were going to a party one night. And, uh, and somehow I was, I was asked to come along and, and, and the lady who was having the party was, uh, we used to call her Fat Shirley. She was the other bartender that, that was there. And, and, uh, and it was just, it was amazing because I remember the comment that she made as we went out the door. She said, he can go to the party if you watch him. And because uh, <laughs> what I used to do is I used to do tricks for drinks. Uh, sometime if there's anybody here who's ever thinking of going back to drinking again, uh, here's, here's a tip. If you go in the bar at eight o'clock in the morning, Somebody asks, you know, you go up to somebody who looks kind of flush, and you say, if I eat a minnow, will you buy me a drink? And uh, the trick is is to have the minnow in your pocket. And uh, because my friend that got killed in the auto accident, his dad used to own a minnow shop. And I'd go up there, and I'd get these minnows, and I'd put them in these little plastic oxygen bags and carry them in my pocket. So I was always ready. And uh, and I would be eating these minnows and stuff. But what would happen sometimes is I'd, I'd forget those minnows were in my pocket. And, uh, you know, they'd be in there maybe for two or three days because I, you know. And uh, people wouldn't invite me over for drinks because, you know, I'd stay all winter. I didn't I didn't really have any uh, any purpose in life. And uh, and people started to say things about me like, uh, you know, don't pay any attention to him. He's always like that. And, uh, and that was just kind of the person I, I was. So as we were leaving the bar... We got uh, Shirley somehow or other in, in the back seat of this, this Volkswagen, and uh, someone had meant a comment about doing some window shopping or going Christmas shopping, and, and you know, a Volkswagen will fit between the parking meters and the store windows on, on the sidewalk. So at uh, 1 o'clock in the morning, I'm driving up and down the sidewalks, and Duluth had the sunroof open, and I'm throwing these beer bottles out, and, and Shirley's in the back seat, and she's laughing, and I, and I think she's having a good time, but she's just about ready to have a heart attack, because she, she was sober. And uh, she's screaming and yelling. Anyway, we went to the party, and uh, and this lady and I developed developed a relationship. And it was one of those relationships where we always would promise each other that we'll go out tonight, we'll have a couple of drinks, uh, we'll go have dinner, we'll go dancing, and everything will be all fine. Well, that never really panned out. And what we do is we'd have a couple of drinks, and we'd have a couple more, and she'd go her way, and I'd go my way. And that that relationship went on that way for for, for quite a while. And then the incidents begin to happen. You know, things that used to happen maybe months apart. Now we're happening weeks apart. And those things that happened weeks apart were now happening days apart. And I was beginning to destroy, you know, from myself from, from, from within. There was no sense of value. I'd arrived at that point where I just, just didn't care anymore. I was just charging through life. And, and I knew that I wasn't going to live that long anyway. So what's, what's the difference? And then somehow or other, uh, I convinced this, this lady that, uh, you know, maybe, maybe we should get, should get married. And that was kind of, we began to talk about that. And I remember one time calling her up from, from uh, the bar, and, and when we went out, and we went to this place called called the Brooklyn Bar. And the Brooklyn Bar is one of the few places I've been in in my life where uh, where you had to wipe your feet on the way out. There was there was nothing socially unacceptable in the Brooklyn Bar. I mean, you could finish a drink in there on Saturday and go back and pick it up on Tuesday. Nobody nobody would bother to wipe the glamour. And uh, we we were over at that bar, and as as we were leaving the bar that night, she looked at me and she says, "I think I better drive." And I said, "You know, you don't have a driver's license." You know, I didn't, ha- I didn't have one either, but it was my car. And, uh, and, uh, we don't have a whole lot of time for details this morning. You'll have to kind of keep up with it. And then, uh, so as we got on the vehicle and we started to drive away, I, I, uh, asked her if she wanted a drink and she said no. And I said, well, hold this one. And I took off and, and I hit something. And, and both of us went, went through the windshield on the vehicle. 
and uh, she got out to explain the finer things that I missed in ABC driving school. And, and I remember when the officer opened up the door on the vehicle, you have to picture this. Now, I'm sitting there behind the wheel. I got the radio turned up. I thought it was raining out. I didn't realize the windshield was smashed. So I have the windshield wipers going. I got the radio up, and I've got a drink in my hand, and I'm trying to get the vehicle started. And a cop looks at me, and he says, were you driving this vehicle? And I said, no, sir. And uh, and on the way over to the Douglas County Jail, uh, you know, you often heard that story about an alcoholic will, uh, will protect his supply. Well, somehow or other, I got a can of beer in my pocket. And as we're going over there, he was asking for the driver's license and insurance. And I said, I can't, you know, can't thing about it. I don't drive any better with those. And people used to get their licenses out of a Wheaties box. What's, what's the difference? And, uh, and he's writing all this stuff down. And uh, I said, uh, I suppose I'm going to jail, huh? <laughs> and he says, yeah, I think you can plan on spending the holidays in jail. And this was in August. And I, uh, and I knew it was going to be a long haul, so I reached in my pocket and I got that can of beer out and I opened it up in the back seat of that squad car and I started drinking it and the vehicle slowed down and I knew what was going to happen because this had happened before and I said just a minute before you guys get out and I took that beer can and I just kind of sprayed it through that cage there and uh, then we got out and we discussed our philosophical differences and, <laughs> and the next morning what I, what I remember was the first recollection I had was was watching my girlfriend at that time leaving, she had got bailed out, and uh, my bail was considerably higher, and uh, they weren't going to be able to get me out that morning. And, and then, uh, and then I had one of those horrendous times where, if there's anyone here who's ever had had DTs, uh, I can guarantee you that that morning I was in a straitjacket in Douglas County Jail with with spiders and snakes on the floor, and, and I was rolling around in there trying trying to avoid them. Uh, and they came in and they took me out to uh, out to the hospital to uh, have some type of an evaluation. And uh, I came back, and a friend of mine uh, bailed, bailed me out, and uh, and I went back to, to drinking about five minutes after, after I got out of the bar. And, you know, and again, I don't want to go on with this, a lot of drunk logs, but there's a couple more instances that are really significant in my life. And, and one was uh, I, I decided uh, after I was I was married and that uh, I should get a responsible job. So I went to work for a local, local utility, and, and part of that was... Uh, They'd send me out of town a lot of times on, on these different different jobs. And, and I'd come home one night, and I had actually passed out in front of this apartment that we were renting. And this was in January, and uh, it was about 30 below, and, and uh, we were close to a hospital. And some nurses came by and, and woke me up about 3 or 4 a.m. in the morning, and, and uh, I crawled up the steps and, and went into the house. And that morning tells me a lot about where my alcoholism had begun to progress to. And uh, when I was going to get up that morning to go to work, I went in to look at myself in the mirror to shave, and I, and I picked up the razor, and my hand was shaking so bad that I couldn't believe it. And I'd been through all those tricks about where you hold your hand and you try to move your face on a razor and all that. Kind of, it didn't work. And, uh, and then I, I rationalized to myself, and I said, you know, I have a construction job. I don't have to shave. And then I went in the other room, and I went to put my boots on. And I, and I put my boots on, and I, and I laced them up. And I literally couldn't remember on how to tie my boots. So I took my boots off and I threw them across the floor and I went out the door to go to work. And that morning when I got to work, our job was, was several miles away from here and I got into a, a truck that morning uh, to drive. I remember the foreman looked at me and said, are you sober enough to drive? And I said, yeah. And we get into the truck and a friend that got in the truck with me that morning, he'd had a six pack and we drank that in the truck before we got out of the driveway and we stopped at the liquor store. Now we're going down the highway towards towards Grand Rapids. And during this, this conversation, we decided that, you know, maybe we'll stop at Floodwood and have a couple more drinks. we got a big brand new boom truck with a 100-foot boom on it. There's 35 guys waiting for us to come and open up some switches to go to work. But you get a couple of alcoholics in the truck with a few drinks, and they can own that power company in about a minute, you know. And we got real important. So we started making some decisions. We'll do the job later this afternoon. <laughs> And we went right by the job into Grand Rapids. We got into Grand Rapids. We went into the vet's club and we're having a few drinks. And what happened there was a guy uh, that was bartending said something about it. He said, you know, we're going to have to uh, put a new flag up on the vet's club here in, in the spring. And I said, you know, I work for the power company. I got a brand new truck out here, hardly been used. We'll put the flag up there today. And he said, you do that? And I said, you bet. So there I am out there on a Tuesday afternoon. There's about twice as many people there that day as there are here this morning. 
There must have been nothing else going on. Anyway, I'm up in a bucket with the American flag in one hand, a bottle taps, blue ribbon in the other, and I'm just feeling really good. I'm doing this thing for my country and the vet. And, uh, but I forgot to put the outriggers down on the truck, which was really exciting for a lot of people on the ground. And, uh, when I landed, uh, the supervisor came up from the back of the crowd. They had found us. And he looked at me and he said, you're fired. You know, and you've often heard that deal that there's no love like one drunken bum for another. My friend says, going to fire him? got to fire me too. He said, no problem. <laughs> and away they went. And they took the truck and left. So we managed to hang out in the vet's club until we got kicked out. And there was little places, and I think it's ironic, it's called the Oasis, just outside, used to be anyway, outside of Grand Rapids. And we got kicked out of there in the afternoon. And I had this brilliant idea that we'd hitchhike back to Duluth. We'd go down to the Union Hall. I'd explain the situation and everything would be all right. Well, uh, people were just kind of going by us. So I told my friend, I said, Randy, I said, I got an idea. I said, you go out there and lay down on the highway. Somebody will see you. They'll stop. I'll explain the situation. They'll sympathize with us. Everything will be all right. So Randy's kind of laying there and cars are going by him. And I said, Randy, you got to get out there a little farther. And uh, he says, not me. And I said, watch this. And I run out there and I kind of slipped and wound up on Highway 2. Well, if you're familiar with Highway 2, there's a ton of grain trucks that go down that road. And uh, I owe my life to some trucker who saw me at the last minute, put his rig in the ditch, but that was enough excitement to bring out the local sheriff and the highway patrol. And the next morning when I woke up in jail, there's a guy in there singing Johnny Cash songs, and he said he was in there for cattle rustling. And I didn't know if I was in heaven or what. It just, just kind of fit my whole scene. And, uh, and I asked my friend, I said, what are we in here for? And he said, uh, hitchhiking. And uh, I said, hitchhiking isn't against the law in Minnesota. So I got my cup and bang and got the turnkey in there and I said hitchhiking is it against the law in Minnesota and he says the way you are doing it it is and the judge will explain that to you at 9 a.m. <laughs> and we showed up and he did and it was uh, it was just like the movies they gave us like a $90 fine or some odd number of days in jail and I always say if there's anything that's worse than, than bad luck for an alcoholic it's good luck and I had a sister-in-law who lived there and she came over and, and bailed us out and sheriff took us down to the bus depot and Unfortunately, we had about an hour before the bus left, so we went over to the Kagama liquor store and got some wine. And on the way back between Duluth and Cloquet on the bus, uh, we got kicked off the bus anyway. And, uh, and I called home and I said to my wife, I said, uh, what's for supper? And she says, nothing. <laughs> because they had called her and told her I was fired. And then I said the gallant thing, I said, well, there's nothing for supper. I'm not coming home. <laughs> you know, like she'd be dismayed. I think that was her plan. And, uh, and what happened was, uh, you know, I drank those, those last few days. I think as few people do drink that way and live, live to tell about it. It was, it was bizarre and uncontrolled and, and, and certainly, certainly everything that, that, uh, I was, I had come to see in life had, had gone before me and I was drinking just, just for the oblivion. I knew it was over. I just didn't know what was over. And I made that phone call home. said, you know, I just like to come home and get my clothes and, and leave. And uh, my wife was really nice on the phone. I should have caught it then. And I uh, took a cab and I came into the house and I had this beer with me and there was some another couple there. And, you know, you start to make that small talk like, uh, did anybody call? <laughs> you know, I hadn't had a call from anybody but a bill collector for three or four years. And uh, and uh, pretty soon there's a knock on the door and, and I opened up the door and there was a sheriff and he handed me some papers. And uh, I remember looking at those papers and the words moved and uh, I threw them down and, and uh, I said thanks and he said no you'll be going with us and I said oh would it, would it be alright if I took my beer with me and he said sure and I thought this was a little unusual now you got to remember I hadn't changed clothes and I'd been back in the minnow tricks and eating some cigarettes for drinks and uh, you know for about five or six days just to give you a little picture on how, how, how I looked and I had, had the dead minnows in my pocket and uh and I, and I got out there and I got in the back seat of the sheriff's car and I, and I looked at him and I said, where am I going? And by where am I going, I meant, am I going to the county jail or the city jail? And he said, you're going to the hospital. And I said, the hospital? What for? And he says, because your wife thinks you're an alcoholic. And I said, well, look at me. Do I look like an alcoholic? <laughs> and apparently I made the grade. And... uh so the next thing I know, I'm walking down the hospital hallway with, with the sheriffs and my beer bottle, and I walked up to the nurse's desk, and I banged it on the counter, and I said, I'd like a color TV private room and no phone calls. I just really didn't want anybody to call. And uh, and they went along with my conversation, and, and I went down the hallway, and the door shut behind me, and, and uh, 
and the light went on and, and the first conscious thought I had when I was in that room was the mattresses were halfway up the wall and there was there was no bed. And uh, I thought, geez, I'm in a hospital. You know, I've been doing this wrong all my life. Everywhere I've ever been, the beds were like this. And uh, I backed up the wall to go to sleep. And uh, and this little leprechaun that they that runs around on St. Patrick's Day, they got him the same day they got me. Put him in the same room. And every time I'd get comfortable against that wall, he'd come over and poke me with his cane and start laughing. And uh, so I went over there. And one thing about those places, if you've traveled in and out of there at all, they have an intercom in there. And I banged on the intercom and I got a hold of the nurse and I said, uh, I'd like the chocolate chip cookies and some milk. And uh, it wasn't too long. And they came over and they slid my window up and the nurse pushed in a cookie and some milk. And she looked at me and she says, this is an unusual request for someone in your condition. I said, oh, it's not for me, it's for him. <laughs> so the next thing you know, I'm on this stretcher with some IVs and I'm going down the hall. And uh, and uh, DTs always aren't that entertaining. I know I've had the snakes and other things, but that was a particularly good time. And, uh, and I remember when the doctor was talking to me, what he told me was he said uh, how close I was to death and all these things and permanent brain damage. And there's certainly evidence of that. I, uh, but I, I woke up and I found out I'm in the nut ward of St. Luke's Hospital. And, uh, and I'm going to be in there for a while. And, uh, there were some things I had to do. And, and part of it was, uh, one day I remember that the nurse told me that the doctor said I was, uh, cleared for, for physical therapy. And I thought, oh, great. I can go down to the gym, work some of this stuff off, and everything will be all right. So the next morning the nurse rings her little bell and I shoot down the hall with all the mother nuts and, it turns out to be occupational therapy. So they gave me a choice of making a keychain, an ashtray, or a wallet. And I said, well, I said, I don't smoke, but my wife does. So I'm going to make an ashtray, and it'll kind of be my deal. I'll go home, and I'll throw it in the house. If it stays there, I'll follow it in. If it comes back out, <laughs> I know I'm not welcome. So I had I had some kind of a plan. And... Uh, so I'm standing in my ashtray with all these other nuts sitting around the table there, and uh, I think I'm doing a pretty good job. You know, I need to tell you, now this time I had a, I'd been to college, and uh, you know, several times, and and, <laughs> and I had some education, I had honorable discharge, I've been somewhere in life, and I, now I'm sober about four days, and I'm standing in my ashtray, and, and I asked the uh, nurse if I could have some more uh, ceramic tiles. I said, I'd like to put some tiles around the edge of my ashtray. She said... No one's ever tried that before. <laughs> so anyway, my ashtray has these tiles around it. And uh, it plays an important part in my life this day, you see, because that was that was the lowest point of, of, of my life was when I was in that nut ward. And today when I think I'm having a bad day, I just got to walk by my ashtray, you know. That's it. There's nothing that's been like that day in sobriety. And I know the other thing that, that was, was an awakening for me was my mother had to come and see me there. I have to remember this is the first time that you know I'd had any sense of sobriety in a number of years. And I remember when she walked down the hall, the embarrassment that I felt for her. Uh, my wife also came to to visit me there, and I and I need to say this that you know when she when she called the sheriff to come and pick me up, you know it was one of those days where she had gone upstairs and prayed that if she'd ever done anything right in her life, you know let let this be it, you know. And I haven't had to take a drink since since that day. And uh, I had to go see a judge. And the judge, uh, after he got done talking to me, he said, "All right, smart guy, wise guy, I'll tell you what we're going to do with you. We're going to we're going to sentence you to Alcoholics Anonymous." And uh, what had happened while I was in that nut ward was I met a guy who had had five years of sobriety, and he had a slip, and his wife had him committed, and uh, he told me that his wife was the president of Al-Anon. So I told the judge that I said, "You know, I said I was just upstairs in that nut ward. I said and I met a guy up there whose wife is the president of Al-Anon, and." Uh, I said, so I'll go to that AA deal. You know, I, I didn't know the difference between AA, Al-Anon, or Texas A&M. I didn't have a clue. I, I never had any experience up to this point. My experience was people going to Moose Lake for the cure and, and coming back and taking an abuse or, or whatever and then going back again, in and out, in and out. Those are the kind of guys that I was, I was drinking on with. Anyway, what happened was uh, this guy picked me up for, for a meeting about about a week a week after I I had been home, and I need to tell you about that walk home from the hospital. See, when I walked home from that hospital, and I and I opened up the refrigerator in this in this little house that we were renting in the alley, uh, 
You know, there was nothing in there. There was nothing in that refrigerator. There was a little bit of milk and, and some cookies and other things. And it was one of those times in my life where I realized that my alcoholism wasn't just, just about me. My drinking wasn't just about me. There was a wife and a son there that were, were living with, with, this, with this insanity on a day, daily basis. And a thousand promises. You know, I tell the kid, you know, Friday night after work, we're going to pack up and go, go fishing. And Friday night after work, I'd stop at the liquor store and we wouldn't go fishing. So next week, I'd say the same thing. You know, next week we'll go. You know, when you do that month after month and year after year, it sort of breaks down any value that, that a kid can have, have in life. I mean, you keep promising them things and nothing, nothing happens and it's, and it's, and it's a letdown. So there are some of those emotional scars that, that he's going to have to deal with over, over time and, and I trust that, that he has. What I need to say is that at this point, I wound up uh, going to the Duluth, Duluth Alamo Club and I'm going to talk a little bit, you know, when you talk about your story, it basically says, uh, share a little bit about what we were like, what happened, and what we were like now. And that's that's what I was like, and, and that that's now the process of, of what happened was when I got to the Alamo Club, I uh, I started reading literature because I wasn't working, and I uh, had no place to go. So I just went and hung around the Alamo Club. And I used to uh, read grapevines in, in, uh, in the big book, and that that's that was my introduction to, to AA. And, and what happened was... Uh, I got back to some of my old ideas, and, and during the process, I was reading that chapter in the book that had the steps in it, and I and I went up to uh, the guy there at the club, and I said, uh, Ralph, I said, I memorized the steps. Do you want to hear them? And he said, no. He said, everybody I know who memorized the steps got drunk. So I went out in the other room trying to forget the steps. See, I, I thought I'd already already worked them. <laughs> that, was, that was my experience. And uh, so what happened was I... I called called my employer when I was reading a chapter to the employers, and I said, uh, "I'm reading this this book, and I and I think I told them I was in AAA. I didn't even know what I was in. And uh, I said, they've got this big blue book, and there's a chapter in here to the employers, and it says no one should be fired simply because he's alcoholic. And he said, that's not the only reason we fired you. And he hung up. And you know. <laughs> That's the best deal I ever got about AA in my life. Because you see, AA isn't a place where you, you come to get your job back or get your family back. AA is where you come back to straighten out your life based, based on principles and, and then as a result of, of, of earning the right to have a job and be employed and to get your family back and to live in, a, in harmony is, is, is how, how it works. So that was a great, great lesson for me. And I know that I had... Uh, Gone to, a, gone to a conference up, up in Winnipeg with, uh, with the Slippers group up there in the winter, and I heard a guy named Dave C. talk about, about big book groups. And, and at that time, we, we didn't have any big book groups here, here in Duluth. And I asked him after the meeting, you know, how, how they conducted their meetings. And he shared it, and we came back here, and we started some, some, some big, book, big book meetings. And that, that's what I'd like to share in the next hour or so here about, uh, about uh, I mean, this is what we're here for. This is the message, folks, as I understand it. Certainly, uh, you know, in the big book on the inside of the flyleaf of the new one, it says uh, the message is the first 164 pages. It was, it was presented in 1939 when it was published, and not much has changed. And I'm just going to shoot you some highlights that have made a difference in my life out of the first 11 chapters in, in a couple minutes here. And then, and then uh, we can wrap it up and get on for the real purpose that, that we're here, the fellowship and, and the conversation and meeting, meeting new friends and... Uh, and enjoying enjoying the day and, and looking forward to, to the evening speakers and, and tomorrow morning and you know reflecting on the great message that, that Marilyn delivered delivered last night. But you know right up front in the, in the big book it says in the, in the forward to the first edition it says uh, to show others precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. You know and I used to watch these old timers sit around the meeting and I'd listen to them and they'd say things like you know I've been here for 20 years and I don't know how this thing works and I'd say to myself. If I'd been anywhere for 20 years, I'd have a clue. And, uh, and on. And I just, I just started to listen to this stuff. I mean, what, what's the message that we're carrying if, if we're saying that type of thing? It gave me no hope, I'll tell you. And, uh, so I started reading the big book. And I remember there was a guy, Tony F., who talked, and, and he talked at our club, my first roundup, and he was there on Friday night, and I swear that he had fingers that were a foot and a half long, and I remember him saying, precisely how we have recovered. It was like this wand was going off and he got me in it. And I started to read the big book. And, and in the doctor's opinion, there's some great things in there that I could identify with early. And one of them was that any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out the physical factor is in, incomplete. And that explains all those times that I would go into a bar and say, I'm going to have a couple of drinks. And then I'd have a couple of drinks. I used to just think I was changing my mind. I had no idea that I was developing that, that physical craving. 
that eventually developed into mental obsession. It says other things in there, like, uh, men and women drink essentially for the effect. I remember reading that and saying, well, that's an understatement. You know, uh, look at the lengths that you went to, Bob. And, uh, and it also tells us in there that after a while we can't differentiate the true from the false. And that, that was true in my life. I mean, I have to check my story out occasionally. You know, what was true and what was false. I had, I had no idea. It also says in there that the only relief we have to offer is entire abstinence. I interpret that as permanent sobriety. It means don't drink between me and, uh, or use or smoke or chew or snort or whatever else it is you're doing. It, it, it requires abstinence. And that's why I think this day at a time thing is way overplayed. Uh, I was reading a book recently, and again, it's my opinion, but uh, it, it says that the intent of the day at a time was to live emotionally a day at a time but to make some plan and to believe in permanent sobriety. And, and I'm one who had to hear that. I know that that was, that was a message that I, that I had to hear. I didn't want to think that I could go along doing everything just just wonderful, and then all of a sudden God sort of pulled the rug out from underneath me and said, Sucker, it's over, you know. that was that, I needed more hope than that. I needed to have some sense of eternal that I never had to go back to the kind of life that I lived. And in Bill's story, you know, he explains that, that invisible line that I hear about. You know, people say... Uh, the invisible line where we crossed over from social drinking to alcoholism or however it goes. And I, and I don't know when that, what day that happened in my life, but the line is simply this, that liquor ceased to be a luxury, it became a necessity. And I know that that happened to me in my teen years. It just, it wasn't an option of what else was going on, was, was their booze, was, was the reason for me to go. Then you get on into chapter two, there is, there is a solution. And in that chapter, where it talks about Almost <clears throat> none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of the pride, and the confession of our shortcomings, which the process requires for its successful consummation. And I know that that sounds like a lot if you knew this morning, but basically that means just just working the steps and go, going going through that process. And that was that was a hook for me because you see it was it was a form of, form of discipline that I had never had in my life. That there was something that I could actually actually do with this. And of my own, I wasn't going to tell you about me. And I know that then you get on into chapter 3, and chapter 3 is where the, where the steps start in the big book. And it's, chapter 3 is more about alcoholism. And originally there was the six steps that we had from the Oxford movement, and they involved a simple process. And the first step that they, that they had at that time was, was complete deflation. And, and I'll clue you, when I was sitting at the Duluth Alamo Club unemployed, and I just called my employer, that was, that was complete deflation. I mean, I had, I had nothing. And I, and I owed, owed some money. And the second second step that they had, and when they had the six step program, was there was there was a process that you had to do with a higher power, and it was simply this: it was dependence and guidance from a higher power. And their third step was about a moral inventory. And their fifth step was about confession. And their sixth step was about restitution. And the sixth step was about continuing to work with other alcoholics. And that was the beginning. And that all started with that with that step that we talk about and and more about alcoholism that we had to fully concede to our innermost self, that we were alcoholic, that the idea that somehow, someday, we can drink like other people has, has to be smashed. And they use that word smashed in there about, about three times. And they talk about uh, about not, about abstinence in there in, in about four, di- four different ways. So I know that it's fully conceding to my innermost self, not to you or to my wife or to the boss or to anybody else, but, but to me. And what required the process for that for me was that complete deflation. So we get on into chapter 4, and chapter 4 is entitled We Agnostics, and it talks in there about step 2. It says, lack of power was our dilemma. Where and how are we to find this power? It says, that's exactly what this big book is about. And that was my process. You know, what I know about Alcoholics Anonymous came, came from the big book, and I, and I just, I go back to it on a, on a regular and consistent basis, because that's, that is exactly that process that, that saved, saved my life. And you get on in there, it shows you can get a chance to choose your concept of a power greater than yourself, whatever, whatever that may be. And you get on into chapter 5, and chapter 5, you know, is how it works, but also in there it gives you a requirement. It says the first requirement for taking the third step is that you must be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. Now, I don't know about you, but I know about me, and I saw what the result of my self-will was. Selfish, self-centered will brought me to the nut ward at St. Luke's Hospital. And it also tells us in there on how to take a fourth step. It deals with three things, resentment, fear, and sex problems. It tells us how to write them out, what the cause, what it affected. And, and it's important to get that on a piece of paper. And that's the best way to tell if you've taken a fourth step if you're not sure, is if you have a piece of paper that's, that has all your stuff written on it. And then chapter 6 says, into action. And I know when I was reading that, that chapter, and in there it says about the fifth step, if we skip this vital step, we may not overcome drinking. And that's exactly why why I took my my first fifth step. I had had a, 
maybe about uh, about four or five months of sobriety, and, and, I, and I had become a deacon in the church, and my wife was teaching Sunday school. It's kind of ironic when I look back now. But anyway, I uh, I went to take my fifth step with that minister, and I started to do the fifth step, and, and he said he didn't have time to finish it. And before we got back together, he left town. And of course, I took personal responsibility for that, and I chased him to Minneapolis and finished it over a three-day process. And uh, and so I know that I came clean, and, and, I, and I haven't had to go back to that depth with things that I did while I was drinking, you know. There's other fifth steps that I've done along the way on an annual basis just to stay to stay current because that works works for me. Uh, and it also talks in there about, about six and seven, about being entirely ready and, and doing that, that seven seven step prayer. And that's that's where I began to see the absolutes. And the absolutes, you know, are the foundation of Alcoholics Anonymous from the Oxford movement. The absolutes are honesty, purity and selfishness and, and love. And uh, they'll come up again in the tenth step, but I think it's just important for me to share that, that that those were the things that made a difference. So what I did with my sixth step is when I looked at what, what my defects were, when I got ready in the seventh step to humbly ask them to be removed, I put the opposite of what my defect was uh, for a principle in, in, in the absolutes, and, and it worked very well for me. Uh, it also tells us about the eighth step, making that list, and the ninth step going on and make, making that rest, restitution. And step ten in there, it says that we continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And as I see selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear, they're the opposite of the four absolutes. Selfishness is obviously the, the opposite of uh, unselfish. And I see honesty, obviously, is the opposite of dishonesty. I see uh, fear in there is the opposite of love, and, and resentment is the opposite of purity, in, in my opinion. So that's that's one way that I balance out my 10-step on, on a consistent basis. Uh, step 11 for me is, is pretty, pretty simple. When I get up in the morning, I, I hit my knees and I say, God... Help me to be more honest, pure, and selfish, and loving this day. Period. That's it. That, that's what I go with. And it's, and it's simple. And it's how I get ready for the day. And it reminds me of a story. And the story is is about the guy that, uh, you've probably heard this, but it works well for me, uh, about the guy that was a poacher, and he would be out taking a game out of season all, all the time. And uh, this game warden had been looking for this, this poacher for, for a number of, number of years, and he finally made up his mind that he's going to catch him. So what he did is he camped out in front of this poacher's log cabin and he stayed there and the night was cold and in the morning, it's about five o'clock and the game warden's watching the, the cabin and, and pretty soon the, the door opens and the poacher pops out and he hollers out. He said, hey Ralph, you want some breakfast? And he goes back in the cabin and the poacher's name was Ralph and he's laying there and he said, now how did he know I was out here? And he thought about it for a while and Pretty soon he gets up and he goes down and knocks on the cabin door and goes in and they're having breakfast and it's just driving him nuts. So he looks at the poacher and he said, how'd you know I was out there? The poacher said, I didn't. But every morning for the last five years, I open up the door at 5 a.m. and I say, hey, Ralph, you want some breakfast? <laughs> you see, and I never know when I'm going to run into Ralph out there. So, so if I get ready and I'm focused on honesty, purity, and selfishness and love, it isn't going to make any difference what Ralph does. I'm ready. And I just read an article in the paper not too long ago, and this guy was quoted that, you know, things would bother him if he was subject to mood change. <laughs> and I, uh, I thought, you know, that's, that's, that's really true. And if I stay focused on those principles and allow my mood and my attitude to be controlled by the absolutes, I will be less subject to mood change, and I can enjoy life. So that's how I do, do my, my 11th step. Then you get on into... Chapter 7, Working with Others, and I certainly ain't about to tell anybody how to do a 12-step call, but I strongly encourage you to read the big book and share your story, and it tells us how to do that in there. And, and I'm moving on here quick. Uh, chapter 8 is, is to the wives, and in there is, is there's, a, there's a paragraph in there, and it says simply this, that there's no situation too difficult, nor any unhappiness too great that it cannot be overcome. And I've read that no less than 10,000 times in my period of sobriety. I mean, it's just there. It just always gives me hope. There's another line in there that says that the first principle of success is that we should never be angry. It doesn't say that we'll never be angry, but if you want to be successful, the first principle of success is that we should never be angry. And that's really, really important for me to remember, that I have my own experience. I cannot think and be angry at the same time. So any situation that I'm in, if I plug anger into it, it's going to go from bad to worse. That's just my my experience. Then you get on in a chapter... Chapter 9 to the family afterwards. And there's more principles that are laid out in that, that chapter than, than any other one, in, in my opinion. And it really tells me how to live in there. Number one, it says that we absolutely insist on enjoying life. Now, I don't know about you, but if I don't insist on enjoying life, it seems like life insists on destroying me. 
It's just, it's just that's the way it is. I begin to get negative, and, and I don't think that the purpose of life is to feel pain. I think the purpose of life is to experience joy. And that's, that's the important thing that I see every day, day that I get up. I mean, ne- negative people just drive me to distraction. I mean, I have a purpose for life today as a result of, of who and what I was and, and, and where I came from. And it's just important for me to, me to share that because that, that is my experience. It also says in there that joy that I released from a lifetime of frustration knew no bound. And I go back to that day that I threw my boots across the floor and walked out to go to work in January in my stocking feet. That's frustration. I haven't had a day near that frustration and sobriety. And I know in there too it says that we're sure that God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. You know, that's that's my purpose. That's the first time that anyone ever really explained what God's will for me was from, from a group of peers. And that's my purpose on a daily basis to experience happiness, joy, joy, and freedom. And it says, avoid then the deliberate manufacture of your misery. After all, God didn't do it. And when I read that, that took God off the hook. Now, now it's up to me. And that, that has made a lot, a lot of difference in my, in my life. You get on to chapter 10, you know, to the employers. And, and, I, and I need to say this, you know, I, I pretty much overreacted. When I, when I went back to work, I, you know, I, I've had the same, same employer after about, uh, three months of sobriety. I got, I got rehired. And I had to go back on the bottom of the list and work through them. You know, some, some miracles have happened over the years, and I've had some opportunities, and I've capitalized them, and I've been, been ready, and it's worked. And what I need to say is that it's a joy for me to go to work on a consistent basis because I realized it was something that was taken away from me, just like my privilege to drive and, and some other things. And, uh, and I haven't missed a day of work since, since, I, since I've gone back, and it's been a little over 28 years. You know, and that is my attempt. You know, uh, if I decided I was, I'm not going to miss Monday, I'd probably miss. I mean, I just get up every day and I'm ready, ready to enjoy, enjoy the day and work as part of, part of what I need to do. And I also know that, that for me, when you get onto that chapter of vision for you, in there there's a line that says, no one has sunk so low or too discredited to be welcomed cordially if they mean business. And that's, that's how a guy like me got, got to be in here. Cause I was an uncorrigible before I got here, certainly. And, but I meant business. I was willing. I was surrendered. And in, and in closing, I just, I just like to say that, you know, my sobriety date is February 20th of, of 1972. Uh, my wife took her last drink on February 28th of 1975, you know, and our son took his last drink in uh, September 9th in 1985. So I think it's, I think it's important to know that, you know, I know about alcoholism, uh, and we've seen it in, in our family, and I know what it was like to lay awake on those, those, those nights when my wife would be out drinking and come home with her sister with the windows rolled down and the stereo blasted. And what was even worse is when I'd sit downstairs and they'd play my AA tapes and drink wine. And uh, I used to think there was something sacrificial about that, but that was going on. And uh, so it's just necessary for me to share those things. That hasn't been a hop, skip, and a jump. And, and, I, and I, certainly, I certainly hope you enjoy your stay here in Duluth. And, and, I, and I appreciate that everybody in this room and, and the other rooms like it that bring their experience, strength, and hope to, to our town because cause we really need you. And I'd like to close with it with a simple little story that, that, I've, that I've heard. And it's all about the first step. And it's an analogy of a person walking down the road and they see a snake in the road. And uh, the snake looks at the guy and he says, I'm, I'm cold and I'm hungry. Would you, would you pick me up? And the guy looks at the snake and he says, no, because you're a poisonous reptile. And if I pick you up, you'll bite me. And they plead back and forth. And the snake says, no, I won't. And pretty soon the guy gives in, puts the snake in his jacket and he's walking down the road. And the snake gets warm and he feels it move and the snake bites him. The guy pulls the snake out and throws it on the ground. He said, you said you wouldn't do that. And the snake looks at him and says, you know what I was before you picked me up. So if you're sitting in this room tonight and you know us in Alcoholics Anonymous and you decide to leave here and go to a bar, you can sit there and you can rationalize and justify and compromise whatever way you wish, but you know exactly what that drink is going to do before you pick it up. Thank you.